welcome back. This is your host, Kevin Pollack, for my Mrs. Nasal Pod, episode 10. Yes, I know you've been waiting to discuss season two, episode one. Can we just get on with it? You might be thinking, well, the answer is no. No, we cannot. Because I've landed an interview with the multi-award winning production designer, Bill Groom, who is about to share with you all of season one, including the pilot, the intense, it's like an overview and a recurring theme of these conversations, the attention to detail. Well, when it comes to production design, he's almost unparalleled, as he proved it in his Emmy award-winning work with the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And so I walk Bill Groom through the whole first season. And folks, if you'll just bear with me another week until we break down episode one of season two, it'll be worth the wait because I'll tease it now. It's me and Tony Shalhoub, and we talk about season two, episodes one and two. Oh, yes, we do. So this is another deep, 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 deep dive with tremendous sharing of that all-important attention to detail with Bill Groom for season one, what would become the multi-award winning season one. I think eight Emmy wins for season one, something like that, maybe more, but at least eight. And here's one of those Emmy winners. As threatened, please welcome Bill Groom. Bill, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm feeling okay. I, I actually just, um, I've, I've not had the COVID yet, knock wood. And I just got a text from someone who was in our home a couple of days ago who said that they just tested positive. And it's a first for me for that to even happen Yeah, in all this time, which is kind of ridiculous and lucky. Well, it's happening. Our construction coordinator's out right now, but he's feeling much better and he's going to be back very soon. So that's great. Yeah. Everyone still seems to be, for the most part, going through a pretty yeah. mild case. Yep. Well, Bill, listen, first and foremost, thank you for making some time for us today. Oh, thank you. We're in the middle of production, damn near the middle, actually, of yes. fifth and final season. And so I would like to just start with how and why you joined the Mrs. Maisel Circus. Uh, well, the, the how is that I was looking for my next project, and I am actually trying to remember what I had just finished. Oh, I just finished something called When We Rise that Lance Black had written and was producing, and I worked with Lance before, and it was a miniseries for ABC, and we shot it in Vancouver. Oh, I love Vancouver. Vancouver's great, yeah, and we shot part of it in Seattle, part of it in Vancouver, and I was looking for another project, and this came up. Not quite sure how, but it came through my agents. And I had a couple of other scripts that were, they were all pilot scripts for series. And this one was just so far and above all of the others. It was such a great script. And as you know, those pilot scripts can just kind of go all over the place with too many characters, too many ideas, too many stories trying to be introduced in the first episode of the series and this one was just so well written and so concise. Yeah. And I just really liked it and wanted to meet with Amy and Dan Palladino. And as it turns out, they live about three or four blocks from where I live in Brooklyn. <laughs> and um, wow. so it was easy for them to meet with me and me to meet with them. And uh, we did and kind of hit it off. And it was great. Yeah. Shortly before you had done, of course, all the amazing and 
multi Emmy award winning work on Bordeaux Empire. So what about the idea of going back into a period piece? Was that a positive or a negative? Well, the kind of challenging thing for me is that I've never really done a comedy and I've never done anything with a palette that's this bright. And I'll use the word David Mullen likes to use optimistic. An optimistic palette. Wow. I like that. Well, he said somebody asked him about the photographic look of the show early on. Yeah. And he said, I wanted to give it an optimistic look. Wow. And wow. I think that's a great word for the period, actually. Yes. And I'd never really done, you know, you mentioned Boardwalk Empire, and that was very dark. The fourth season of the show, we brought it even darker. And I used to refer to it as the liver palette. That was sort of the color of liver was the brightest thing in the show. Wow. We used a lot of grays and blacks and browns and it kind of trying to express Nucky's interior life, I think. And and this was the first time I'd had the opportunity to work in this kind of look, in this kind of uh, palette. and Optimistic. And this kind of optimistic subject. So I, I was excited about that. And um, they liked me and they offered me the job and I jumped at it. And I'm, and I'm so glad I did. Yeah, well, sure. The pilot script, in terms of your department specifically, in what ways did it sort of speak to what you sort of specialize in? Because I know in the pilot, there seemed to be an awful lot of practical sets versus all the builds we've been doing on sound stages ever since. Uh, we didn't build very much for the first episode. We've built quite a lot since then. And, and in many ways, that's more for production reasons than anything else. It makes more sense sometimes to be working on a stage and coming in and out of the stage as opposed to going to a different location every day. It's just practically oh, yeah. a lot more sense to be on stage. And then there are times when we've had to create things that wouldn't have been so easy uh, had we been out on location. But yeah, that was kind of the big difference in a way from the way we approached it then to how we approach it now, because the idea of building wasn't really an option for us so much, partly because there wasn't much stage space available. There still isn't in New York City, actually. That's one of the hardest things about starting a project in New York, or certainly a series, is finding stage space, right. finding a headquarters to work, because there's so much work happening now. Right. And that's true all over the world, really, and certainly all over North America. I found that to be true. We just were talking about Vancouver. I found that to be true in Vancouver. I think it's true in Canada, all over the United States. And now so much work's being shot in London and Paris and Rome and yeah. Budapest and uh, all over the world. Yes, finding that sound uh, stage space. I noticed in the pilot, of course, we'll just start with the wedding scene, which, while being a practical space, clearly was invented and created to give it its look. Yes, I think even with a period piece, even though you're working or maybe working in practical spaces, there's almost always a lot of work to be done. We rarely walk into a space and shoot it as it is because it's a period piece and things have changed. It's been a long time since 1958, which is what I think was the year when the pilot took place, 58 right. And it's a modern world. We shot in Paris in the second season of the show. Yeah. And... You know, Paris is a beautiful city and there's so much there to be found. And yet it's a modern city. So we actually did quite a lot of construction in Paris on storefronts and that sort of thing just to make it right for the period. So that's true everywhere you go. And that we've done that on this as well. We we rarely, as I said, 
we rarely walk into a place and shoot it as is. You're right. For the gaslight, for example, I'm assuming there was an existing uh, small club of some sort initially. We built that, actually. We built that at a community center. We didn't have the stage, stage space to do it, but we found a community center with a, a large sort of black box theater. Mm. And um, you'll notice in the set, we now do the um, the gaslight on stage, and you'll notice in that set, there are a couple of columns that are in the space. Those are real columns in the uh, community center, and we incorporated those into the set. Then when we moved that set to the stage, we wanted to keep those columns so that it matched the original, and uh, we did. But yes, we built that because the gaslight space doesn't exist any longer. The physical space is there, but it's some kind of restaurant now that's been completely changed from what it was Right. The gaslight, but that building still exists. Right. But the street itself has changed so much. So we actually didn't shoot on that street. We shot farther over in the East Village and dressed that entire street with storefronts and everything to make the street for the gaslight. Yeah. I remember talking to, uh, uh, for the podcast, Lou Kirby, and he talked about the cab ride or, or, or the, 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 the arriving and seeing so many storefronts having been reimagined. Well, that's an example of a situation in the pilot where you often don't have the ability to amortize costs over several different episodes. Yep. So you don't know at the time that you're making it whether you're going to have money to pay things off later or not. So you kind of have to work within the box, as people call it so often, uh, that you're given. And in that particular case, Amy was especially helpful in help in figuring that out because we were able to do all those different moments that were meant to be different streets on the way to the gaslight. We right. did them all on one block. And we then used all of those exteriors as we dressed them as just sort of background farther down the street from the gaslight. So they we did double duty with them. They were featured in that ride, cab ride downtown, but then we were they were seen in the background from the uh, exterior of the gaslight. So if you look closely, it's almost like the old Looney Tunes cartoons where if there's a chase going on, the two characters keep passing the same little boxes along the wharf. The same rock, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, listen, the look and texture from every department on the show in the pilot, along with the brilliant writing and the allegedly brilliant acting, I think, yeah, I don't think it's, I think the acting is brilliant all around. It's such a great ensemble. It is a strange alchemy and lightning in the bottle in the sense that, yeah, sure, if you get extraordinarily talented people for every department in front of or behind the camera, your your chances are better that you're going to achieve something magical. But it's far from a guarantee. All those elements have to then go through the post-production process, which we both know is where so many things are are made and, and or broken. Do you remember at all your sense when you saw the pilot? And did you see early versions of it? Or do you even allow yourself to look at your work? Uh, you know, I, I, I must have seen the finished pilot before it was aired. I don't right. recall that moment because usually when we're finished with shooting a project, I'm on to the next thing and I'm sure. not around for post-production. That's not the case when you're doing a season of a show. And 
because I'm we're now shooting uh what are we shooting tonight? Episode five. I could go back in the editing room and see bits of episode two and episode one. And I usually see pretty much all of the episodes finished by the time we yeah. wrap the season. That was not the case last year for some reason. Last year was a, a different year because of COVID and the restrictions of that and everything. And I don't recall seeing all of the finished episodes last year. I really kind of saw it for the first time when it aired wow. not that long ago. And I was, I, it was just great. It was so, you know, I, it was what a great season that was. Yeah. It was both the writing and the acting. I mean, your scene with Abe in yeah. the hospital is yeah. just this wonderful scene. And this moment when you thank him for is just such a moving moment in the show. And I would say there are a half dozen great monologues or scenes like that in the last season, in season four. Yeah. For a yeah. comedy, it's interesting. I, I liked last season more because it was more dramatic and emotional. Well, it's it's so funny because my wife, I watched it with her and she just loved it. And she said, well, this it, this season has such heart. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. That's also, to your credit and your fellow actors, to create this family that people are invested in, I think. And that that's happened, and it really hit some kind of critical mass last season, I think. Yeah. And this season, I'm optimistic about as well. It's I'm really enjoying the scripts that we're getting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is that, for me, my experience as an actor who's been around a bit, it's quite bizarre to experience this level of consistency. Yes. You know, it, it happens, but when people compliment uh, my work, I'm very quick to say that, that there's absolutely no way to screw this one up. I've tried. Well, it's it's funny. I did a, I did an interview that uh, Tony Shalhoub was part of uh -huh. last year, I guess it was. And the question came up, and it comes up often from interviews about how we coordinate. And in this particular interview, they were talking about the look of the show, but how we coordinate the look of the show with each other. Mm. And I just don't have an answer for that. In fact, like Donna Zakowska and I have kind of joked that we, we coordinate the look by not talking and we don't talk that much, but somehow her clothes will show up on a set and it just, it's just perfectly coordinated in some way. And Tony interrupted and was saying or he added that it's it's collaboration by shared sensibility oh yes perfect and he was referring i think to the acting as well and i think and i've said to interviewers you know that even though the script doesn't say well the room should be pink or the room should be this or the room should be that it's somehow in the script the mm -hmm. feel of the show is in the writing in a way, without pointing any of it out, the costumes or the rooms or any of that. And yet, just by reading the script, we all kind of have this, again, this shared sensibility, and we it comes together in some way. Yeah, they are able to articulate the specificity of, of everything. Yeah. On the page in such a way, you're right. And just in language of the actors, not in yeah. scene direction or anything. You know, I mean, it's really interesting. And I've had the conversation with we have a new editor this year and uh, Anthony and I, 
I had a conversation with him. I asked him if he was having fun yet. Uh-huh. He said that it's so much fun to edit the dialogue because it's never... He used one example of some dialogue where one character asks a question and the other character knows the answer, but the first character didn't know that. And then there's a little bit of a back and forth. It's never just a straight... None of the dialogue is just a straight line. Yeah, It's very interesting and very natural in that way. Yeah, And so in a way, he wasn't I mean, he's, you know, the editors have a lot of work to do on this and all of that, but they're kind of saying the same thing that you and I are saying, that it's kind of there for you as an artist to explore. And that's to Amy and Dan's credit, I have to say. Yeah, I assume your experience working with Amy and Dan has been... um not just enjoyable, but one of that shared sensitivity. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. This business is so interesting because as familiar as it can be to somebody like you or me who's been doing it for a while, it's never the same twice. No. And that's the one wonderful thing about it, I think, is... Can be wonderful. It can be wonderful, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can also be... A nightmare. A nightmare and it can be and it can be it can be boring i mean i don't find this show very boring but i found others a little boring to work on but yeah can i quote you on i don't find this one very boring (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's talk not without the context (laughs) yeah let's get to that potentially magical moment when the pilot is so well received by the public amazon decides to pick an up the series to two seasons, um, which is very rare. Right away. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very rare. It suggests a sense of support and freedom for Amy, Dan, and yourself. And I believe it was picked up sooner than anybody expected it to be. For sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they did not waste a lot of time, did no. they? I mean, they must have looked at it themselves and thought, well, we're going to let the public weigh in, but we know what we want to do with this. Yeah. Yeah, it was just so well executed. So let's go to that moment when, okay, now we are going to do a series and apparently we're going to do two seasons worth. And is it shortly thereafter that the conversation shifts to getting those sound stages for season two? Oh, sure. Yeah. And starting to build the world. Well, so season my, one and season two. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So then my question becomes in a real behind the scenes a sharing. How much is shared with you and your department in terms of when to start building? What's going to be needed in the first few episodes? Is it? I know there's a usually an outline that is shared with department heads. I know when for the actors we go in our first check-in is really with Donna for fittings, and she'll have certain outfits that she knew to build for us based on this. Yes. Larger overview outline. Is that similar to your experience? Uh, Yes, it's similar. I mean, we don't have, we don't, on this show, we haven't started any season with all of the scripts. I think such a thing does happen with some shows, but it often does not happen on many shows. It never happened that way on Broadway. I mean, um, I'm sorry. It never happened that way on Boardwalk Empire, as far as I remember. And most shows, I think, don't have all the scripts before you start the season. Some do. Mm-hmm. But Amy and Dan have always shared with us the important moments in the story arc for the season. And so that's kind of all the art department needs to know, that we'll need 
to have Midge's apartment. We'll need to have the gaslight. We'll need to have a Susie apartment. So those things, those kind of basic things are known pretty early and they share that with us. Yeah. So in fact, I remember I didn't start, of course, till episode two of season one. So the first episode- Back. I was trying to remember if you started in the pilot, and I didn't want to ask because... No, no, it's fine. In <laughs> fact, Amy and Dan sort of realized somewhere in post-production of the pilot, oh, shit, we're going to need some in-laws. <laughs> <laughs> there was no reason for us not to be at the wedding. Uh, let's assume we were, uh, but uh, <laughs> that's what that is. So the I remember when we shot the second episode of season one, and we were on the soundstage in the extraordinary set of the Weissman apartment. It was immediately shared with those of us who were new to it, really Caroline, Aaron, and myself. You know, this is a spitting image, flawless replica of an actual practical apartment that we shot in for the pilot. For the pilot. Yeah. Is that a joy for you because it's so exact or does it take away some of the creative enjoyment? It only looks exact. Aha. That's the challenging part. It's one room short of the original apartment. If things were compressed, nothing in that original apartment was built at a right angle. Uh -huh. Our set has walls at a right angle and all of that. We made adjustments to make it better for shooting and easier for us to work in and so on and so forth without changing it so much that the audience would ever notice it. So right. that's part of the challenge in doing that to make it better without it looking different. Right. And I remember uh, in episode two, we see Joel's office. So, so it's that 1958 yes. office building. Is that something you had done before, a 1958 interior of an office? Uh, I don't recall ever having worked in this period, actually. Oh, yeah. And this yeah. period is very tricky because it's been done. I don't want to say it's been done badly, but it's been done the same way many times right. on many shows. And so there are traps that you can fall into with this 50s Mm. period. And we tried to make it as layered as New York was in the 50s. Right. It's New York was as layered as it is now and tried to keep it that way and not the restaurant isn't the local soda shop and all those things that you can, those traps you can fall into. Right. But the 50s, that was, I kind of in the pilot tried to lay it out into the Upper West Side look, the Midtown look and the Downtown look. And of course, the gaslight falls into the downtown look. Yep. Joel's office in the midtown look, and then Midge's apartment in the Upper West Side look. And yep. that helped us to kind of stay focused on that, I think. That particular office building was pretty intact from the period, mm -hmm. except that it had dropped ceilings, which I've been very careful to avoid. I see it on other projects out of the period, incorrectly being used earlier than it existed. Those drop ceilings that we see everywhere uh, in almost every office building these days didn't happen until about 1963. So I did a whole series of ceiling pieces that masked the existing drop ceilings in that particular office. We did some changes in hardware, a little bit of framing that would have existed instead of the frameless doors and walls. It was just a matter of sort of trying to stick with that. And the show's gotten so much attention for its detail. And I find it curious that people notice that because all I'm trying to do is just be truthful to what was true for the period. 
without going crazy. I mean, you can, you know, you can't spend a ton of money on this show. You know, we have a limited budget like every other show. And I have to figure out where to spend that money and where not to. But there are times when those period details are very important and times when it's not so important. So, Well, it's important for folks listening to know that somewhere during the process, there were budgetary restraints because oh. all they've all they've been hearing is the, the the lack of restraints. Well, and that's just not true. It's funny. Our producer says that, you know, the word is that we have a blank checkbook and I can only take that as a compliment that it looks like we have a blank checkbook, but right. we, we certainly don't. We put together a budget and an answer to a budget and we have a weekly, or I should say a, an episode budget for every episode. And we have to meet that budget and make choices. And sometimes that is a matter of going to the writers and talking to them about what we can afford to do and what we can't afford to do. And sometimes you can make changes in the script and sometimes you just make changes in, in what you expected to do in the beginning and find out you can't afford to do. Right, of course. In the end, it's a business. Yes. And we're all responsible to that business. Yeah, we will, sure. Even the great artists, maybe more specifically, it is the great artists that you don't want to have no boundaries. Yeah, yeah. We may never finish an episode yeah. if that's the case. Yeah. Well, I think, isn't it Woody Allen's, didn't he say it's called show business and otherwise it would have to be called show show? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what <laughs> sure. I mentioned Joel's office because in the very next episode, there is such rich detail and extraordinary artistry at work in the Michael Kessler office of the rundown <laughs> No money story of the attorney for well, the people. Well, those are the sets I've done most of my life. Those kinds of sets are the ones I've done most of my life. Yeah. Not the shiny, brightly colored things. So those are the, the ones that I'm very comfortable doing, and they're fun to do. And yeah. um, that just happened to be an empty old office that our location department found. And, you know, they bring me pictures, and they'll scout a half dozen places, show me a half dozen folders or more, and I'll choose what I like. Right. And then we went to it and it was great. And we just filled it with Michael Kessler stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A bit busy is. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. There's, there's uh, instant awareness. That's the thing for the viewer's eye. It's such rich detail, but also. The overview of it washes over you in a nanosecond and you know, okay, not a guy who cares much about appearance, doesn't have time to tidy up, but also constantly working. You know, I've said so many times that what we do as an art department is we focus on two things, character and story. Yeah. Those are the two things, character, story all the time. And I'm careful always to never try to in any way outshine that or go beyond that, but to try mm -hmm. to keep it within those two requirements, really. Right. Because we're here to tell the story just like you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I remember thinking it's those little spaces we've all been in, like the record store in episode four. Which has changed very little since 1958, by the way. Right. That owner, that was a great find. We took away a lot of modern instruments and and things, some of the things that he had in there 
that are more of a modern sensibility than they were at the time. But he's pretty much been there for all that time. Yeah. Also, in episode three was the Friars Club. I don't remember if that was built or with a huge shot that at the Friars Club. They have now given up that space. And um, it's it's interesting. I don't know what their space is now, but uh, that hadn't changed very much. Mm -hmm. Um, We liked it enough that we chose to do the scene in there. Now, they often did roasts and things like that in other venues. So they didn't always do all of their events in that space. But um, yeah. We like that space. Yeah. So finding that record store must have been quite the sense oh, of joy. It was great. And that's a good street, too. That street hasn't changed much. We always have to change signs and, you know, electronic things get taken out of windows sure. and all of that. But yes, that was a great street for us. And Joel's new apartment in episode four, he's moved out. And we finally see him in his own new apartment. Was that a build? At the, um, this is you're not talking about the season four apartment, you're talking about season one. We one, see, yeah, that that apartment was in an empty space. At we imagined, I should say, that it was in an empty space at Maisel and Roth, the clothing company. Mm. It was built on stage, but I based it on rooms that I saw in the building where Martin right. Greenfield's tailoring business is. And, yes. Yeah. It was based on that, but it is built on stage. Yeah. Okay. And the Copa it was the club and the kitchen. Yes. Yeah. We did that at um, Masonic Lodge here in Brooklyn. The kitchen. Yeah. We we created the kitchen. Oh, you did outside the space so that you could actually be. The scene was they were standing in the kitchen looking through the door. Right. The main room. Yes. And we built the palm tree columns and all of that stuff to make it the Copa. And so you're studying existing photographs and designs from the actual Copa? Oh, sure. With every location. I would say there are every set. There are very few sets that get designed and built or a location that's chosen without a lot of research that goes into it. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, a million pages of research probably that comes either from the internet. There are all kinds of sources. Library of Congress, we have an account there. And then there are various picture services. And then we buy books. And um, yeah, I prefer to work from books and catalogs and brochures of the period. Okay. As opposed to books about the period. Nice. Because I'd like to do the editing myself and not you know, not dependent on somebody else's. But there are many great books out about the period as well. And we we use those also. But the old plumbing catalogs, the old electrical catalogs, furniture catalogs, brochures from furniture stores and clothing stores and all of that. Those are all great sources for us. Amazing and educational. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, listener. Do you sometimes wish you could talk to someone about the stress and pressures of work or the way a family member can make you feel about yourself? Most of us have had troubling frustrations with our so-called better half and just don't have anyone to talk to, someone who won't judge or dismiss how we're feeling. Well, I'm here to personally share that talking to a professional therapist has certainly helped me, and if there's even a chance, it could help you with whatever you're struggling with. I encourage you to give better help a try. Talking to a licensed professional therapist could lead to simple improvements like learning to set boundaries and create positive coping skills. It can truly make a difference with how you start every day as you gain mental clarity and solid footing. Well, 
If you're thinking about taking this life-changing step, please consider doing it by heading over to BetterHelp.com. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, set up to be best suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Oh, and this is great. You can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Episode 5, of course, we find ourselves at B. Altman, the department store. Wow. <laughs> well, I, that's an example of Amy and Dan and me, our, our department, and others working collaborative because we were just looking for a space for her to work. And it's an old bank in downtown Brooklyn. Crazy. It, well, really more the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. And it's been privately owned for many years. I've never met the owner. She sort of maintains it as a community center, but it's a beautiful building hmm. with beautiful wood columns and all the detail. And at one time, the first time I ever saw it many years ago, it still had some of the bank partitions in it and desks and all that stuff. Now it's pretty much an open room. But because of all the wood detail in it, I remembered when we I walked in with Amy and Dan, I said, oh, this reminds me so much of B. Altman because I was... I came to New York a couple of years before B. Altman went out of business, or maybe a little more than that. Such a beautiful store. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It just was spectacular. And, you know, I think they had bespoke clothing and, you know, you could get a suit made. It was just, it was an amazing place. Yeah. And they included that. They were thinking that Midge would work at a department store. And when I said that, they included B. Altman as the idea. And it's kind of something we've tried to do a few times where we've recreated, the, well, the Gaslight's an example of that, sure. right? of something, put something in the show that doesn't exist anymore to look back at that time. And B. Altman is an example of that. And that truly did exist as opposed to making up. Oh, absolutely. As, a, as opposed to making up a fake. There were several different department stores that don't exist anymore. I mean, um, Abercrombie and Fitch was on Fifth Avenue before it was purchased by the people who own it now or owned it um, recently. And it was a spectacular showroom that I, it was unbelievable with rods and reels and boats. And I got here early enough to have seen that as well. That didn't last very long. Right. But that's how that came about. And that was kind of a collaboration of sort of whatever my memories were. And, and that's, one, that's a very small advantage I have to be old enough to actually remember the 1950s. <laughs> well, listen, when one watches the show, those scenes at B. Altman's, you could pull a thousand people and maybe one or two would say, no, nah, that's not a real store. I mean, to the detail of the revolving door and the light source coming in from what we believe to be the sidewalk, there's never a moment where you feel you're on a soundstage or, or even this set build in this existing space in Brooklyn. To go from the ground, especially, as you say, an open floor with really nothing in it, and to articulate all the history that you do remember. Well, since this is um, not, you're not doing this as a video thing, but I just happen to have a large blow up of the B. Altman up there. And do you see those big lights? Yeah. Those we created. You mean the so pillar lights? 
they were these, yes, they, they wrapped around the column and they were made of milk glass and brass trim. We created those as lighting fixtures for the scenes so that the DPs wouldn't have to hang a lot of theatrical lights. Oh my so God. those lights provided enough light to shoot the scenes, but we designed them in a way that they felt at home in that department store. Never question them, barely notice them because they fit right in. You're right. Yeah. So you just turn them on and off and, and they certainly had their own lights that they had to use from time to time. But sure. this did a, a general lighting of the set. And when I asked David Mullen about those lights, is he going to agree that it was a goodly amount of light source? That <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I don't remember how much he did, but David and I get along pretty well. We, um, yeah, he's just great to work with, and yeah. um, what a lovely guy he is. Yeah, truly, truly lovely guy. That's a great way to put it. He's, yeah. he's very unassuming and. And yet a very, very specific. And, and very uh, knowledgeable about the movie business. Uh, oh, my, yes. I told him I had written and going to direct this contemporary set, but noirish style whodunit. And he rattled off maybe seven movies I need to see immediately and why each one would educate me to the style. Well, Amy often calls him the professor. Yep. And he is that. That's an apt title. And I do love that you have that frame photo protected, of course, by some sort of plexiglass, I'm, at very least, I'm guessing. Not at all. It's just it's just a, photo, a print. It's an enlarged <laughs> photograph. All right. Well, I love we that have you... The, we have the ability to print giant photographs here, and we do some of our own graphics in-house. Right. And it's, that's very helpful for us. And sometimes... We send it out if it has to be a billboard or something like that. But the truth is, we could print billboards right here in the office if we had to. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I got to set to see the exterior having been built of Moish and Shirley's home <laughs> with the giant sliding photograph curtains yeah. of our neighbor's homes. And that's that's a great backing. Um, that's Don't quote me on this because I don't know. I, want, I don't want to give the wrong person credit, but I think it was done by Pacific Studios, and they did a beautiful job of that. When you're standing in, in your house and looking out the front door, mm. it looks it's very convincing. They did a great job on that. Yeah, I guess it was when we shot season four. I feel maybe was the first time we showed up and saw that. We had to do it on stage for season four because of COVID. Right. That's what I thought. In fact, yeah, I remember. I feel like we could go back to the location. I don't think yeah. we could at that point park trucks on the street or any of that. So it was an investment that had to be made in the show, but yeah. something that probably would not have been. No. Done done on stage if it hadn't been for COVID. Well, it was a great shot in the arm for the actors who play Moish and Shirley, knowing that that investment had been made, that that build had been made, and that we would be spending time on that set. And that's an example of where the budget becomes an issue for us to deal with, because I felt that that particular set had to have a real front yard, Yep, had to have a sidewalk, had to have a street with cars in it outside. And then the rest, which went on beyond the neighbor's house and into their backyard and everything, that was in a photograph. But we very often, I mean, it's a photographic backing that's yes. especially printed. That's often put very close to the set. And you don't have the exterior space outside the windows. Mm -hmm. That's useful when the windows are small enough or high enough off the floor and you don't see the bottom of the backdrop. Sure. In this particular case, because the doors opened and we saw all the way to the floor, 
and the windows went all the way to the floor in, in both rooms on the front. We just had to do that. And it was very expensive to light that. And yes. I won't go into the money, but it was just not a, it was not an option to cheapen that in some way. No shortchanging that one. We just couldn't shortchange that. And it, yeah. it works very well when you open the front door of Moish and Shirley's house and see down that sidewalk and out to the car parked on the street, you believe it as a real. Yeah. It looks like the set that we shot as a location in season three. Oh, 100%. And folks should know further to what we're talking about. There are two or three cars parked on a fake driveway in front of that house that was built. And then beyond those cars is this sort of photographic backdrop curtain yes. that wraps around the entire front area and to the sides. And it, uh, I'm just ridiculous. It's just, I hadn't experienced anything quite like that before, and it was well. That backdrop's especially convincing. You can take photographs of the front of the set and see the backdrop, and in the photograph, yeah, just it seems to go on down the street, and uh, yeah. Oh, in episode five, also we see the stage deli, which we end up using quite a bit. That was a, a restaurant that had been in business many years on the Upper West Side, and. They were looking for a tenant, and it just turned out that we were the tenant, and I used a lot of what they had in there because it was good for the period. Then we brought in a lot of our own deli cases and that sort of thing. Sure. And thereafter, when we return to the stage deli over the seasons? It's been the same place every time, yeah. Wow. I assumed at some point we must have built it, but that's no, great to we've know. Kept it. We've kept it that whole time. Partly because yeah. stage space is so scarce in New York. Yes, of course. It's it's possible we would have built that at some point, but there was never space, stage space for it. And so that functioned not only as kind of a practical location, but stage space for us. I wonder, it must be public knowledge at this point where the existing space is that we use as the stage deli. It's on the Upper West Side. I don't really remember the cross streets there, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I'll have to provide that in the wraparound. Oh, Ruby Foos in episode six, I was also taken by. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. assumed it was a restaurant space, but there's no reason to assume that because, again, you had made it so perfect. Well, it was it's a Chinese restaurant. In fact, I ate there not long ago when we were shooting at Rockefeller oh. Center. <laughs> oh, is that right? So uh, it was there, but we brought in columns. We brought in a lot yeah. of the um, restaurants in the 50s. The Chinese restaurants in the 50s were a little more, it's a lot more red in the yes. 1950s in the Chinese restaurants and uh, a lot of dragons and that sort of thing. And what about the extraordinary look of Abe's classroom? One is it's easy to assume you just step right into an existing. That's the one place where we've done very little because yeah. that's at Columbia. It's the only place like it on the East Coast, really. There were some construction issues there and we looked all over the East Coast. Well, they looked as far south as Princeton and as far north as Harvard, I think. But that's at Columbia, and it's um, a lecture hall that's really pretty much untouched. Yeah, yeah. Untouched for 100 years. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I remember doing, in episode seven doing this scene as a flashback scene where I, ha I sit down young Joel, who's just been bar mitzvahed, and talk about the importance of what, what it established for the Maisel family in terms of pulp and circumstance. And then I proceed to take all of his bar mitzvah money. <laughs> but I remember that being a build on the stages of, you know, really it was going to be 
his bedroom and a little bit of the hallway of the Maisel apartment from 15 or more years prior in this flashback scene, that it would never exist again, really. It was sort of the one of those one-offs. Well, we used his bedroom a few times until we imagined Moish and Shirley moved to their new place in Forest Hills. And that happens occasionally in a situation like this, where the only thing you've seen of a particular character's place is a bedroom in that particular case and a hallway outside. Yeah. And then you kind of back into, well, what was, then we ended up shooting an exterior at some point. Mm. What would that exterior look like that goes with that bedroom with, you know, so we don't always go into these things with the idea of the whole house and what it is and an image of it and a, or a location for it or a design for it. Occasionally you back into these things and that kind of happened with that particular house. Yeah. When Moish and Shirley moved to Queens, we were open to the idea. That's another example of collaboration with the writers and directors. We were open to the idea of Brooklyn, parts of Brooklyn and so on and so forth. It just so happened that that house in Queens was just perfect because what Dan, what was the most important to Dan and Amy and what Dan said to me was the house should show Moisha's pride of ownership. Yeah. And there was just something great about that house with a center hall, center sidewalk leading up to a center front door, yep. sort of colonial revival in style. And, and it, it just fit perfectly. And then they wrote Queens into the script over and over and over, which is kind of great. Yeah, true. And that particular neighborhood was a popular neighborhood for up and coming Jewish families. So, um, yeah. Stepping into it when we shot on that location, it's surrounded, of course, by not so luxurious, upstanding society. It's its own little pocket. Oh, Forest Hills is fabulous neighborhood. I mean, yeah. it's just and I believe that the Forest Hills Association or whatever it's called maintains the streets and the streetlights and all of that. It's not a closed community, but it's kind of regulated and maintained yeah. by a neighborhood association of some kind. Jimmy Breslin grew up in that neighborhood. I was friends with Jimmy Breslin's daughter um, and um, wow. heard about that neighborhood a bit. And, oh, I'm sure. So it was it was kind of the Brooklyn Heights of Queens. Yeah, right. Yeah. There you go. It, it was the upscale neighborhood in Queens. And then we can't talk about episode seven without getting into the glorious, ridiculous home of Sophie Lennon. <laughs> That's because um, it's all in the writing what you have to represent visually to make damn clear what this broad arch character on stage lives as her private life. Yeah, and that character's become, over the years, such a great character, hasn't Oh, it? one of my all-time favorites, yeah. And don't you think, I don't know this from talking to Amy and Dan, but I am just from having done other projects over the years, that may not have been a character they had planned to maintain for many years. That may have been oh, I don't something think so. that, you know, and that happens a lot with characters. Somebody like Sophie comes on the scene and she's so good, you just can't let her go. Yes. And she's, Jane is so good in that. She's a phenom because once again, it's something we hadn't seen her do as an actress and Amy and Dan knew she could. And she went so far beyond delivering for anyone's expectations, wants or desires that it just becomes singular. Yeah. As a performance. But again, I stress that environment 
we as an audience walk into it through David Mullum's lens and we need to see the opulence within a nanosecond. I can't recall what that's called, that place. I should remember all these things, but I just, you know, once we kind of pick something and move on, I kind of dump all the uh, research that goes into it and the location scouts. That's actually kind of a museum house. Mm. And it's. I don't think it's the Colonial Dames. I think that's another building. It's not a museum. It's a foundation house. I'm not sure what to call it, but it must be some sort of historical landmark. And it's beautifully maintained. And we brought in furniture and flowers, and of course all of that. And it has a beautiful little garden in the back that you see. I think a couple of times in a, in a couple of the episodes. Mm-hmm. And it worked really well for her. And over the years, you will just return to that same. Probably not. We a- need to do it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, this is our last season, so I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know whether it's coming up or not. Yep. And then in the season finale, Ethan's birthday at the carousel. That was in Prospect Park. There's a great old carousel there. Yeah, sure is. We had to do a little work to make room for the birthday party in a space they had at the rear and Mm -hmm. had to do a little bit of construction. It wasn't an easy place to work, but it's easier than creating your own carousel. So, yeah, so authentic, that carousel. You definitely want to work around it. Yep. And there's also this burlesque dressing rooms, which, of course, plays into season four later. But initially that we shot when we were shooting the exterior of the Altman, it just happened to be scheduled on that day. Mm. So I just needed to find a space. So we just went to an empty store across the street, found a corner that looked good added a couple of walls and dressed it in so it could be shot on the same day as the exterior of B. Altman. Once again, an empty space becomes so specific, organic, and real when we see Midge and Susie sitting there waiting for her to go on stage. Yeah, it kind of like such a moment in time with the women and the way that they're scantily clad, but the nuance of the setting that you all created. Well, sometimes you discover things in a location or in the scouting of a location that you wouldn't create otherwise, and you just incorporated it into the set. I mean, that particular set had a couple of steps up on one side and some steps down on the other, and we just tried to incorporate all of that, and it just makes the set a little more... It's kind of like what I was talking about with the dialogue in a funny way. Mm. It's not a straight line, necessarily. I mean, sometimes... Yeah, You would do that as, I don't even know how to describe it, but, um, (laughs) you know, sometimes you just find things that you wouldn't do otherwise, and it makes it better. Well, you're inspired by... Yeah, and you just don't try to, something that might be in the way, an obstacle or something, you just try to incorporate that, make it part of the set. Yeah. I used to work with a great production designer named Mike Haller, who did all of Hal Ashby's. Oh, man. And Mike had this funny Southern California drawl, this funny, funny kind of attitude about sets and how they fit into movies and all this kind of stuff. And he had grown up in California and, and grown up in the business. You know, it's LA's a company town for kids who grow up there. And sure. He said to me once, he said, you know, if I get a script that says John Wayne walks into a saloon, he said, I'll lock the door. (laughs) His whole thing was about creating obstacles for actors, Yeah, not making it too easy. And he would create these visual obstacles too. We shot in a courthouse once and he sent the set dressers downstairs 
and he went down with them and they found a dolly full of sheetrock and a bunch of joint compound cans and that sort of thing. And he brought it upstairs on the elevator and stuck it in the middle of the rotunda of this courthouse so that it wouldn't be perfect. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to sort of... Of course. Not always go for the obvious solution. Or just to be beautiful. Or just to be beautiful, but to have something that doesn't belong or... Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you, know, you learn something from everybody you work with and you learn every project, you learn something from the project. Yeah. And we've learned a tremendous amount from you. Forgive me for using that as the perfect segue to thank you. Oh, thank you. For your time today. And if you don't mind, we will be calling upon you again. People love the show. I just <laughs> never meet anybody who's, oh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen it really. But everybody just <laughs> loves it, loves it. You're right. It is a wonderful byproduct of this experience that you're hard pressed to find someone even on the fence about the show. Certainly we have our detractors, but any creative endeavor is going to. But it is bizarre. Also to reach the global population is a very surreal experience to be accosted. I spent five weeks in the UK this last fall and um man are they fans and various nooks and crannies therein well we try to make it authentic not at the expense of the story and not at the expense of the characters and wherever we cheat a little bit i try for it not to be too obvious but it's nice to hear of people who lived during that time on the upper west side and are so touched by the show right yeah. People are. We had a group who said his mother used to cry when she would watch the show because she would remember what life was like up there yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember showing up to work my first day on episode two of season one and asking, you know, Tony Shaloub, who worked on the first episode, you know, what were the expectations? And, and Tony said, which I'll now repeat for this podcast, because it's so wonderful. Well, we knew the Jews on the Upper West Side would watch the show. <laughs> so to reach the globe is um, just such a shock and surprise and a sort of never ending bonus. And I don't hear anybody complaining about, you know, I think we probably have taken some little cheats with Judaism too. Yeah. But we try to stay pretty close to it. It's not a documentary. That we got to remind people of that. We are creating such an authentic reality yourself at the helm many times. And thank you for sharing the ins and outs of what that means. But at the same time, no, folks, it's not a documentary. Right. It is an absolute piece of fiction that we are drawing from historical facts right. here and there. Yep. Well, thanks, Bill. Thank you so much, Kevin. This is great. All right. We will speak again and I will see you around the stage soon. Great. Thank you so much. See you there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That is Mr. Bilgro. You can just hear it in his stories and his excitement and enthusiasm to relay his process to us, to share it with us, uh, what this work means to him. And uh, man, oh, man, what a joy to talk to him about that whole first season. Yeah. The great Bill Groom. Thank you, Bill. And I thank you folks for dialing us up. Yeah. And it's at this time, of course, that we're going to open up the Mrs. Maisel Pod mailbag. Let's see who's written to us today. And continue to write into my Mrs. Maisel Pod at gmail.com. In fact, we have one of your emails to read right now. Open up the email bag. Ba -bum -bum. 
And today's mailbag comes all the way from the United Kingdom. Hi, Kevin. Greetings from Kent in the UK. Thank you so much for your brilliant podcast. Well, your opinion. I'm enjoying it so much. It's a great way to help me deal with the sad end of my favorite, spelled with a U, TV show of all time, Sob, dot, dot, dot. My question is very trivial, but I would love to know the answer. Since watching Mrs. Maisel, my husband and I can no longer say the word 13 without putting an unnecessary emphasis on the second syllable. For us, thirt, and then the teen is in all cap, Jews, has gone down in cultural lexicon alongside things like, in quotes, Matt Damon. I assume that's Matt Damon. And he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. He's the second one for them. We are doomed to say 13 this way for the rest of our lives. I'd love to know if Moish's brilliant pronunciation was written into the script or direction, or was it a genius touch you added to the character yourself, which maybe opens a wider question about how much you as an actor may have contributed to Moish's development as you got to know the character. Thanks so much, and please keep up the good work. Kind regards, Jane. Well, thank you, Jane, from Kent in the UK. Um, well... As brilliant and unmatched in my humble experience as an actor, these scripts are, there was no emphasis on the second syllable in the script. There was a beautiful dissertation that was written for this blowhard. And when reading it and studying it and figuring out where I could add my two cents, seemed like he had chosen this number 13 for a reason. There might not have even been exactly 13. But even if there were exactly 13, that's not why he's emphasizing it so. Because it's more than a dozen, and it's way more than 10 or less. Yeah, I found that it was the most obnoxious way possible for this character to pat himself on the back which was to emphasize the number. The number was not emphasized on the page. The number was written, so that to me was ridiculous enough that they wrote this beautiful soliloquy for the blowhard and that the soliloquy mentions the number. So then the actor, me, just decided to, to push a little or a lot on certain aspects within it. And that number... Yeah, it follows me around a bit, but I'm glad it has made itself uh, usable and appreciated all the way to Kent in the UK. Thank you, Jane, very much. Uh, and thanks to all of you writing into my Mrs. at gmail.com and for listening and giving any appreciation whatsoever. I didn't choose this one because it was all about me. I'm just going through them. I've reached out to my co stars and co workers with. Many of your other emails, folks, and I'm just waiting and curating and dropping them into episodes. So in the meantime, I found this one so enjoyable because of the contribution to this fine couple's discomfort and now celebration. Closing the email bag. I've got to start copywriting some of these little gems I'm writing on the fly. Don't you think? Dear copyright lawyer... How do, oh, hello, Jim. I forgot. Your name is Jim. I, I've been writing these, uh, not writing, I've been thinking, I've been spitting out of my face hole these uh, little, not writing to anyone, 
Thank you to my research writer, producer, Jamie Foxx. Thank you to my recording engineer, post-production genius, Ken Plume. Thank you to the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code sounds like something. And to all of you, each and every one. Yep, you, you, and especially you. Next week is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Season 2, Episode 3. Oh, my guest is another Emmy winner. He's a multiple Emmy winner. And, um... Hmm. This is one of the big gets, cast-wise. Ah, I've said too much. Until next time, this is your host, Kevin Pollock, saying thank you. I'll see you in my dreams. Please be kind to each other. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.